Good morning. Welcome to what we are trusting is this last Sunday of being scattered together. And we got a few gathered here this morning to be a part of this last we pray taping. And man, what an experience to sing together and just hear voices singing in this place. Pretty overwhelming. Whew. Still kind of messed up from it. But I want to get us into this passage. This is so good today, what uh, God has for us. So I want to share this with you. So we're going to do what we do each Sunday. We'll look at the passage from God's Word, talk about what it means, why it matters, and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app, whatever you're using, would you turn to Genesis chapter 40? Uh, we are in chapter 40 of Genesis now, continuing in this series through the life of Joseph, Meant for Good. And here's what we read today. Sometime after this... The cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against the Lord, the king of Egypt, and Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt who were confined in the prison, each his own dream and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled, and so he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, we have had dreams, and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God. Please tell them to me, even in prison. Joseph is a little evangelist here. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, in my dream there was a vine before me and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded its blossoms shot forth and clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand and I took grapes and pressed them into the Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. And Joseph said to him, this is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you. Look how confident Joseph is of his interpretation. He's like, when you're out of here, remember me uh, when it is well with you. Please do me this kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, oh, I also have had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. On the third day which was Pharaoh's birthday. Uh, history tells us maybe not his birthday, but the day he came into power as Pharaoh, which would have been seen as the day he became a god. Uh, many times amnesty was given on these days. He made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet... The chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. That's God's word. Let me pray for us quickly, and we'll dive into this. Uh, Spirit of God, would you illumine the preaching of your word? 
Uh, we come with openness uh, to receive whatever it is you want to show us through your word. We ask, as you've promised, would you accomplish the good purpose for which you've sent it out uh, in each one of us, whatever that is today. And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Amen. Well, it's a relatively well-known story by now. Maybe you know it already yourself, uh, where there is a young boy one day. He finds a chrysalis out in the woods, and he brings it home in order to watch the newly formed butterfly uh, emerge uh, from its enclosure. But one day as the butterfly begins its exodus, if we can call it that, the boy notices that the hole in the chrysalis that the butterfly is seeking to push its way out of, it's well, it's too small for the size of the body of the butterfly. And so it's, it's struggling heavily, and at one point it just stops. It just gives up. It can't make it out any further. And so in, in kindness, uh, the little boy, he takes his trusty pocket knife and just makes the smallest little bit more opening in the chrysalis so that, yeah, as expected, the butterfly now easily emerges uh, from this chrysalis without problem. However, to his shock, instead of drying out its wings and flying away, uh, the butterfly instead crawls along the ground, dragging its shriveled and wet wings behind it, and shortly thereafter dies. It's a chipper story, I know, to begin with. Why, why would that happen? Why? Well, because, very simply, that sustained struggle to push through that smaller opening is actually part of the butterfly's design. It's what's needed to push all the fluids and butterfly stuff out into the wings so that they work properly, so that they can actually function the way they're intended. And so in, in helping to ease the struggle, to, to shorten the butterfly's struggle, the boy had actually hindered the butterfly's development, in this case, irreparably. And I don't know if it's the same for you, but when we come to this next stage of Joseph's life, which we just read here, where he changes now from the coat of a servant into the coat of a prisoner, I, I kind of, I, I want God to ease Joseph's struggle too. I want him to just reach down and snip open the, the struggle that he's going through a little bit wider so that he can emerge from this season of suffering and finally enjoy some of the freedoms that he's been longing to enjoy all this time that he clearly deserves. And yeah, I know in saying that, uh, that desire is likely drawn by my own desire that God would do the same for me when I'm going through some season of struggle or difficulty, that he would shorten or, or ease the, the length of time in that struggle. And yet what God knows, and what I apparently so often still forget, is that not only is struggle itself part of growth, part of spiritual development in the life of kingdom citizens, like we learned last week, so too is perseverance. So too is patient endurance underneath that struggle necessary in order to bring the good work that God began in us to completion. And that's a really important uh, reality for us to remember uh, as we understand and continue to grow in this learning about spiritual formation as we learn from this section in Joseph's life in particular. Sustained struggle is actually necessary in order to continue to complete that work. And yet, alongside that reality, um, which is, is important in itself, and maybe not quite as obvious, I think something else we're shown here as well, is something that's a little bit maybe also harder for us to grasp, and that is the way that God still continues to use us and call us to be used even in the midst of that struggle, 
even in the midst of that formation. That is, contrary to popular opinion, God is not waiting for the good work that he began in you to be completed before he will call you to be used in his kingdom. He's not waiting for that time. And we're going to dig more deeply into both of those realities uh, as we go this morning, and that's actually how I'll divide up our time in this passage as we look at the power of perseverance and the discipline of availability. Power of perseverance, discipline of availability. But the point I hope that you'll come away with regardless uh, as we look at this passage this morning, looking at these two realities is very simply, just as we learned last week that spiritual formation is not a day spa, what we're going to learn today is that neither is it a microwave oven. Spiritual formation is not pizza pockets, as wonderful as those are. Uh, it is not the matrix where we can plug in and download spiritual maturity in seconds. No. <laughs> anything, anything worth having is worth waiting for, as the old saying goes. Uh, I don't know if anyone's ever said that to you. Maybe not always helpful in the moment, but it's true. Anything helpful is worth waiting for. And as I think beyond that, what we see really throughout the pages of Scripture, not just in Joseph's life, God is just as committed to the process of spiritual formation as he is to its end result. He's committed to both. So let's do this. Let's dig into this together and see what we can learn from this. If you've closed your Bible, your Bible app, would you open it again with me to our passage, Genesis 40? Follow along with me as we continue to grow both in our understanding of, as well as our appreciation for, I pray, uh, the work of God in our lives through the example we have in the life of Joseph here. This series we're looking through meant for good. Okay, so let's look first of all at the power of perseverance. Power of perseverance. Now, I realize it's a little bit difficult to get a sense of the timeline of what we're talking about because we've been chopping up Joseph's life through the weeks, and so it's kind of hard to get a sense of where exactly we are. And not to mention the fact, beyond that anyway, the, the descriptions that the author gives us here uh, are, are so vague. Like, look at verse 1 when he says, sometime after this. Okay, well, how long is that? Is that weeks? Is that years? Month? He doesn't say. So it's hard to get a sense of where we are. But when you consider that Joseph is 17 years old, he's a 17-year-old youth when he first is sold into slavery by his brothers, and as we learn later in chapter 41, Joseph is 30 years old before he leaves this prison cell that he's currently in, means this season of development for Joseph as either a slave or a prisoner has been 13 years long. Let's just allow that to settle for a moment, 13 years long and, and understanding that I just invite you to imagine how you'd feel if you are currently in a season of struggle or difficulty right now and I told you that that was going to continue for another 13 years <laughs> uh, yeah I, like I know a lot of times we can struggle and bemoan the fact that when we're seeking God's will and his plan for our lives we want him to reveal like God show me your will show me your plan for my life I think you know this example alone might show us that maybe it's God's mercy that he doesn't Show us always what's coming. But one of the hopeful reminders right away that we're given, actually even before all the good stuff we look at in chapter 40 in our passage, is what we see in the final verses of 39, which we didn't cover last week, when Joseph first enters into prison. Because what we learn, just as we saw in verse 2, when Joseph first comes to Potiphar's house, so we learn once again in verse 21 of chapter 39. The Lord was with Joseph. He was with him here as well which reminds us that when God begins his good work of spiritual formation in us he's not outsourcing that process he's not sending us off to some kind of spiritual reformatory school and saying hey good luck 
come back when you're all grown up and all fixed. Like, no, he's, he is with us every step of the way along that process. Spiritual formation is a hands-on process for God. And just as we saw in uh, Potiphar's house, so too we learn now in prison. The presence of God with Joseph, walking alongside him, distinguishes him from the rest of the others and, and causes him to raise up, to, to rise to a place once again of leadership, of prominence, although yeah, he still is in prison. Which is great. Uh, uh, that's encouraging to, to read. Great that, that to know as we think of how that would apply to our own lives, to know that, yes, even in the midst of difficult circumstances, even in the midst of trials and struggles, God is with us and he can cause us to, to rise up and have been moved to prominence, even in the midst of those struggles, uh, that's great. But the simple reality that doesn't account for is that Joseph still has to walk through those 13 years, either as a slave or as a prisoner. He still has to go through that. And, and, and all the while, as he's going through that, enduring, what, betrayal, false accusations, abandonment, re rewarded for uh, his confidence and trusting God with, with prison, um, and, and as we read here in this chapter, he doesn't even make it out of one chapter without once again going back down to the bottom of the pile again. Uh, he's betrayed and abandoned once again. And I think in light of that, when we look at that reality, that he actually has to walk through this stage of life. I think the question that could legitimately be asked is, if God is really with Joseph, if he's truly with him like we're being told him, why wouldn't God deliver him out of these circumstances? Why wouldn't he do that? Or if not, if not out of them entirely, because, yeah, fair enough, we just learned last week, struggle's important, it's a necessary part of spiritual formation. Why, why not at least widen the opening a little bit for Joseph to make these struggles easier or shorter for him to endure? He's God, he could do anything. Why, why wouldn't he ease the struggle for him? And the reason why I believe God didn't do that for Joseph and why he often doesn't do that in our lives either is for the very same reason it was wrong and mistaken for that little boy to open, and open the hole in that chrysalis wider for that butterfly to get out. Because it's what was needed. It's what was needed to form Joseph to be who he was going to be. He couldn't see it in the moment, but God knew. Because as I said when we began, <laughs> the reason is that spiritual formation is not a microwave. It's not a microwave oven. Uh, a spiritual maturity isn't achieved by sitting through a 20-minute inspiring TED Talk or anything like that. It's not accomplished by enjoying as easy or trouble-free an existence as possible. God's design, the means that he has chosen to grow and mature us, is struggle, is trial, is testing. And, and as we're seeing here, and we're going to continue to see here, perseverance, patient endurance underneath that struggle is, is as important to our spiritual formation as the struggle itself. They're both necessary. If I could try to prove that to you in some small way, just invite you to, if you've ever been prescribed antibiotics by your doctor before for some infection you have, what does the doctor say to you every time he gives you that prescription? Don't stop taking this medication if you start feeling better. Finish out the entire 10-day cycle or 10-day course. Why does he say that? Because you might start feeling better two days in. Two days into the medication, you're like, okay, I'm good. You stop taking it. Doesn't necessarily mean because you're feeling better that you are better. And very likely, if you just stop taking it, you're going to end up back in the doctor's office again, uh, having to do something more, possibly worse. 
So while the medication is the right means to treat the infection, the, the duration for which you take that medication is just as important to its effectiveness as the medication itself. And so too here, uh, when we combine all of this together as it relates to our spiritual formation, I think all of this is summed up really simply and effectively for us in something that James says for us right at the beginning of his book, some verses you're probably familiar with, where he says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you encounter trials of many kinds. Why? Well, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And listen to the very next verse. Allow perseverance to finish its work. Allow it to finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So much wisdom in that, which we can see right now, harder to apply in the moment, I know. But allowing perseverance to finish its work, that's the power of, of not just having to endure the struggle, but to see the other side of it, see the benefits from it. That's what the power of perseverance shows us, hopefully helping you to begin to see the goodness of God, either in, in not shortening the 13-year-long struggle for Joseph or whatever it is that you're happening to uh, currently struggle, walk through, or walk through right now yourself. It's the goodness of God to not do that. Once we recognize that it's not just the struggle, it's not just the testing itself that forms and matures and prepares us, but persevering, enduring underneath the struggle long enough for it to complete its good work, that's the point. So that's the power of perseverance. The last thing I want to look at together with you from this passage is the discipline of availability. The discipline of availability. And this point centers around the details that we have as it relates to the interactions that Joseph has with these two high officials from Pharaoh's court, the chief cupbearer and the baker. Look at verse uh, one, to th one through three uh, in the passage here. We'll see this is where we're introduced to these chief officials who apparently have offended, uh, the, the committed an offense, it says. The Hebrew is literally sinned against the king of Egypt. I think kind of trying to contrast the fact that Joseph is there without having sinned against anyone. These guys are there legitimately. They've committed some offense. As a result, they're put in custody and by God's sovereign plan in the same place that Joseph is being held. We see in verse 4, the captain of the guard, which if this is the same person we learned about in chapter 39, is Potiphar. He makes Joseph their attendant. But when we come to verse 5 now, we see that one night, both of these uh, officials from Pharaoh's court have these dreams. And these dreams that are very troubling to them. Now, you and I probably have dreams all the time. And most of us, we don't give them too much thought, even the really bad ones. We're just like, okay, man, that was awful. We get up, get dressed, go to work, we don't think about it anymore. But, as commentator Gordon Wenham notes this, quote, the Egyptians shared a belief, widespread in antiquity, that sleep puts us in real and direct contact with the other world, where not only the dead, but also the gods dwell. Dreams, therefore, are a gift from the gods. He goes on, their interpretation, however, was a complex science entrusted to learned specialists. John Walton adds this, quote, in ancient times, in the Near East, dream interpretations were sought from experts who had been trained in techniques and methods of the day. Both the Egyptians and the Babylonians, he says, compiled what are called dream books, which contain sample dreams along with the keys to their interpretation. And then these dream books preserved empirical data concerning past dreams and their interpretations and therefore offered the security of scientific documentation. 
can now know that we have the right <laughs> interpretations to, to give. But now here's the key issue as it relates to these two officials from Pharaoh's court uh, that are hanging out with Joseph here in prison. They're both being held in custody, waiting trial. So that's what it means. They're waiting the trial to come. They've both had these dreams, which again, they would have seen as revelations from the gods as it related to their upcoming trial. But because they're in prison right now, right, they're, they're not, they don't have access to room service or any of these fancy dream interpreters who can tell them what the dream means. They're just left to sit in the agony of not knowing what their respective dreams had revealed to them. But look at this now. Look carefully at Joseph in verses 6 and 7. Joseph, although now twice abused, mistreated, abandoned, betrayed by his own family, and unjustly imprisoned for wrongs he did not commit, still, look at this in verse 6, comes to these two prisoners that he's now being made a slave of. He's a, he's a slave in prison. Like, this is crazy. He still comes to them with genuine concern and compassion. Why are your faces downcast today? What, what a question to ask in, in the stage of life that he's in. And look at verse 8. When they tell him their issue, they tell him what's going on, rather than just being like, yeah, well, gee, sorry to hear that. Have a good day. Instead, offers to use his divine gift of dream interpretation, which he plainly tells them. This is, is, is from God. God is the one who gives me these interpretations. It's not, I haven't learned to do this. I haven't read the dream books. God is the one who gives me these interpretations. He still offers to use what he has, makes it available to serve these guys in their hour of distress. And I'm not going to speak for you. I don't, I don't know how, how you would respond to this, but this is where Joseph and I kind of diverge ways uh, when it comes to like, if I can just call it a pain management strategy. We just have different ways of, of going about it. Um, because if I just lived through everything that Joseph had just gone through uh, up until this point, the very last thing that I would be thinking in this moment would be, hmm, these privileged high officials from Pharaoh's court, they seem like they're having a bad day. I wonder how I can serve them and make myself available to them in this, this time of trouble for them. I, I would not be thinking that, right? That is not the first place or even the, the hundredth place my mind would go. In circumstances like those that Joseph has walked through, and if we can just be real honest with each other, in circumstances far, far less traumatic than Joseph's, what's usually very often going on in our hearts and minds in seasons of suffering is what we, we hunker down. We, we batten down the hatches, up goes the closed for business sign, and, and we, we lock into full-on self-preservation mode. Isn't that what we do when we're in a season of suffering? Like, 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 what is the bare minimum that I can do? I just want to remain as still as possible here in the fetal position, just wait it out until the storm has passed, and I'm on the other side of this hopefully alive. That's usually how we respond in these moments. And so if I'm... If I'm if I'm Joseph here in this passage, even if I do happen to peek up from my bunker long enough to see that somebody else around me is also suffering, that's uh, uh, what, what I believe, or at least what I usually convince myself to believe, is that, listen, sorry, sorry for you. Uh, uh, there's just simply no way I can help you right now. Can't help, sorry. Uh, uh, I, at least I can't help until I'm through this struggle. When I'm through this season of difficulty, when it's over for me, when my feet are on solid ground again, then yes, sure, I'd love to help. I'd love to serve your need, but not right now. I can't, I can't help you right now. No way God could expect me to, 
minister to someone else or serve them. When, when I'm going through this difficult time, I'm, I'm not formed enough yet. I'm still too immature. I'm still too weak and broken or whatever it is right now. So, so clearly God can't be expecting that of me. And yet look what, look what Joseph's story reveals to us. What it reveals to you and me, again, as we said in the beginning, God is not waiting for the work of spiritual formation or for the good work that he began in you to be completed before he will call you to be used in his kingdom or before he can use you in his kingdom. But because you and I so often believe that he does, he does need to do that first, or at least he needs me to be a lot less weak or, or, or more spiritually formed than I am right now first, we shrink back from opportunities. We step away from them. We close out the, the needs of others that we see around us, not recognizing that those opportunities are actually a part of our deeper spiritual formation. And just to transform this or transfer this out of an Egyptian prison cell into our own backyards, if I, if I can do that, my challenge to you, and, and I take this on myself, as it relates to what we're seeing here in the life of Joseph, is I think it, it's, it's worth taking a moment to just pause and think and, and really reflect on what we're seeing here and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you. Ask him to reveal to myself whatever it is that I believe I am either too much of or not enough of yet in order to be used in his kingdom. What is it that you are too much of right now? Maybe you're, you feel like I'm, I'm too old, I'm too young, I'm too sick, I'm too depressed, I'm too busy, I'm too inexperienced, I'm too poor, whatever it is. Or what am I not enough of yet? I'm not smart enough. I'm not, I'm not fixed up enough yet. I'm not mature enough. I'm not trained enough. I don't have a clean enough past. What is that thing that you feel like I need to get past this first? This needs to be completed before I can be used. Because what I believe is each one of those situations in itself is kind of a prison cell. It's kind of like the code of a prisoner where it causes us to see like I'm in this period of waiting right now so I can't yet be used. Think of the Apostle Paul, for instance, 2 Corinthians 12. God, remove this thorn from me because I can't serve you with the effectiveness I need while I still have this weakness. And God's like, oh, no, no, yeah, you can because my grace is sufficient for you. I'm not waiting for you to be free from that thorn in order to use you. But notice here, what we learn from Joseph's life is that even though his own trying circumstances have not changed in the least when he reaches out to meet the need of these downcast officials, there's nothing changed for him. He's still in the exact same pit, facing the exact same uncertain future. He's still carrying around the exact emotional trauma that he had the night before when he went to bed. Nothing has changed for him. And something else we, we, we see here as well, when it comes to like how we can be used in the midst of our struggles, he's not offering what he doesn't have to give. He's not making some kind of false promises to lift their spirits. Hey, guys, you know what? Don't, don't worry. When I get out, I'm, I'm going to talk to Pharaoh for you and, and put in a good word, or I'm going to talk to my friends on the outside. They're going to bust us out like some kind of cowboy western or something. He's not offering stuff that he doesn't have. What is he doing? He's simply offering what he has in that moment, making it available to meet a need that he sees in front of him. He has this gift that given him by God of dream interpretation. That's what he has to offer, and he offers it 
And as a result of his availability to be used by God, even before any of his circumstances have changed in the slightest, the good work that God began in Joseph's life now moves another step forward towards its ultimate good end. He, he moves forward in the process of his spiritual formation. Centuries later, Jesus would ask a similar question of his tired, hungry, overwhelmed disciples when they felt like they were deserving of a break too, when they faced the need of thousands of people in need of a meal. And he said, you feed them. But you notice when he called them to do that, he didn't say, hey, do you have enough? Do we have enough in the truck to feed everybody? He didn't say, are you sufficient in yourself and able in your own midst of your poverty and weakness to meet this impossible need? No, he simply asked them, what do you have? What do you have? Will you, will you make it available to me? And then he took what they had, which wasn't nearly enough, and multiplied it in order to minister to the needs of thousands with leftovers to spare. And I believe that whatever your circumstances that you are sitting in and walking through today, whatever it is, Jesus is asking the very same question of you and of me today. What do you have? Will you make it available to me? Will you be available to me? Not, not because God's cruel or, or because he's uncaring or because he wants to like take the last bit of like something that we have to hold on to. He wants to impoverish us even further. Because, but because he wants to move us along in the process. He wants to grow us and form us more deeply into the image of his son. And because he wants to prove to us once again. He wants to prove his power and sufficiency even in the midst of the darkest dungeons that we might be sitting in. He wants to show us, listen, just, just look what I can do in the life of someone who makes himself available, makes available what they have to me. Look what I can accomplish when someone does that. Would, would you do that as well? That's the gift of, of what we're seeing from Joseph here. For ultimately, what we see played out in the coming years of Joseph's life and in his formation, in which I believe we will also see played out in our lives when we make ourselves available to God, even in the midst of our struggles, even in the midst of our testing as well, is the words of blessing that the master in one of Jesus' parables spoke over his servant. When he said, well done, good and faithful servant, you have been faithful with a few things. You, you had very little to offer, but you made it available. Therefore, I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. I don't know where any of this finds you this morning, where it speaks to you particularly how the Spirit of God has been working in your own heart and mind as you listen. Hopefully, as I said when we began, you've been, you, you'll come out of today and this time in Joseph's life with at least an understanding that the process of spiritual formation is just that, a process. It's a process, not a microwave oven, not a high-speed download. And hopefully you'll see as well through the example of Joseph's life that although, yes, the process can absolutely be long and difficult at times. It can call us out of our comfort zones to call us to be available when we feel like we've got almost nothing left to give. Just look at what we're seeing. Look at how much Joseph has already changed since we first began. We see that that. It's powerful what God is working in his life. It's beautiful. And it is always meant for his good and just as it's meant for our good. And so in light of that reality, which we're seeing in Joseph's life, I guess the biggest question facing every single one of us is, as we close this morning is simply this. 
Why, why aren't we experiencing more of this in our lives? Like if the results are truly powerful, beautiful, good, like we just said, why don't we submit ourselves more regularly to this process? Why do we keep fighting against it? Why do we keep trying to believe that God's provision for us would be to get us out of the struggle? And I think the answer, if we're being really honest here, is that in the end, I don't really believe that the work God began in me is good or that its end is good or that his plans for me are good. Yeah, I can see how ultimately they were good for Joseph, probably good in some other people's lives. I can see that. But, but whenever God's call on me is to persevere under some trial and not just to get out of it, but to persevere under that trial until it's completed its work, Whenever God calls me to make myself available, when I feel like I've earned a pass right now because of the struggles I'm going through, all of a sudden, I start to believe that maybe God doesn't know as well as I do what the end should be. I don't believe that maybe even being more deeply spiritual form, spiritually formed is all that great an end goal. And in the end, I think ultimately we just believe the lie that was spoken to Adam and Eve right at the beginning of time that maybe God doesn't have my best interests in mind. Maybe what his plans for me really aren't that good. And so we resist. We, we don't submit ourselves to this process. And yet, here's the thing. The thing we can never allow ourselves to believe in those moments of doubt, which we all experience. Let's, let's be honest. We, we all experience these moments of doubt, particularly when we're persevering under a struggle. What we need to remember always is that unlike you and unlike me, God isn't guessing when he begins the good work in our lives that he promises to bring to com completion. He's not, he's not that buddy or that friend that you have that's like, you know what, I got a great idea. Just, just trust me in this. Let, let's try this out. That's not him. Okay? He's not studying all the current leadership self-help models, uh, following all the style and social media trends and saying like, I put together a great package. I, I think, just trust me, walk into this. It's going to be really good for you. No. The, the one who has begun this work and is completing it is, is the God who Isaiah tells us there is none other like him. He is the God who is declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. That's the one who is calling us to this good work and bringing it to completion. He's not guessing he sees exactly what the finished product will look like before he even begins a day of forming you. He already knows the end he's working towards, and he knows exactly what you need in order to get you there. He knows what you need. He knows how long it needs to take place. That's the one who has called us to do that. That's why we can trust and submit ourselves to this process with confidence. And that's what people say, right? You've heard that before. You've got, you got to trust the process. Haven't you heard people say that? You've got to trust the process. My, my prayer for each one of you today, in light of all that we've seen God working in the life of Joseph, the way he is sovereignly moving all of these plans for Joseph's good, is that when it comes to the process of your own spiritual formation, as dark, as, as difficult, as, as fearful as the road ahead of you may look at times, that you would trust both the process as well as the loving, sovereign hand of the one who is with you and forming that process. Don't just trust the process. Trust the one who has created it and is taking you through it. With confidence that the work that he's begun in, in us, it does have a good end. And that he will not permit us to struggle one moment 
more, one moment longer than he knows is necessary to bring us to that good end. There are so many uh, great helpful metaphors to describe the, the process of spiritual formation, what it looks like. One, one that has been particularly meaningful to me over the years is God as a refiner of gold. If you know this process, it's very much where you have something that seems pure already, but it's heated up and all the impurities come to the surface and the smelter will wipe away the impurities from the top that you hadn't seen before. That's, that's a, an image of God's forming of me that I found really helpful over the years. And for me, it was while in one of the darkest dungeons of my own spiritual formation that uh, I remember my mom. She sent me this poem, which I want to just read for you right now, which speaks of God in this way. I'll just share it with you in closing. The author is unknown. We don't know who wrote it. But the message, I pray, just will speak the same hope and encouragement and perspective into your own experience of struggle, just as it did and continues to speak into mine. That's what he says. He sat by the fire of sevenfold heat as he watched by the precious ore. The closer he bent with searching gaze as he heated it more and more. He knew he had ore that could stand the test, and he wanted the finest gold to mold as a crown for the king to wear, set with gems of price untold. So he laid our gold in the burning fire, though we fain would have said him nay. He watched the dross that we had not seen as it melted and passed away. And the gold grew brighter and yet more bright, but our eyes were so dim with tears as we saw but the fire and not the master's hand and questioned with anxious fear. Yet our gold shone out with a richer glow as it mirrored a form above that bent over the fire, though unseen by us, with a look of ineffable love. Can we think that it pleases his heart to cause a moment of pain? Ah, no, but he saw through the present cross the bliss of eternal gain. So he waited there with a watchful eye, with a love that is strong and sure, and his gold did not suffer a bit more heat than was needed to make it pure. Amen. May we, may we trust the process, as well as the loving, sovereign hand of the one who began it and who will bring it faithfully through to its good and perfect and glorious end. Amen. I want to give us just a closing benediction. Before we dismiss to a closing song, it is the same one as last week, but it's so good. I just thought, let's do it again. Receive these words. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Go in the grace and the peace of Christ.